Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're exploring this classic series from the beginning to see what's still worth watching for a modern audience. Today, we're going back to the Himalayas with the Doctor in 1967's hmm. The Abominable Snowmen. I'm your host, and for some reason, I spend a lot of time looking for my balls. <laughs> my co-host is Guy, who prefers not to discuss his hairy beastie, if you know what I mean. It's <laughs> caused me nothing but trouble. <laughs> Do you remember any stories where the TARDIS lands in the Himalayas and there's a mysterious footprint outside? <laughs> yes, yes, that was uh, the Aztecs, if I remember right. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, that was Marco Polo. Both it's the same location and, uh, and some similarities, at least in the very beginning. It kind of <laughs> diverges quickly after that. So, episode one. This was filmed in Wales in a place called Snowdonia. So they were actually out in the cold on the side of a mountain and <laughs> feel bad for all the actors. But we don't actually see the Welsh scenery because it's animated. That's what I was going to say. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. This one is animated. I think one, I think the second episode exists, but uh, they chose to just animate them all. Going in, I, I, you know, really knew almost nothing about this story and actually had some probably wrong assumptions about it, so we'll see how that goes. And we open on a tent in the Himalayas, and someone is yelling, and a man gets out of the tent looking for his companion, and this man is Travers. The actor for this role is the father of the actress who plays Victoria. So, so I guess they had an acting oh, okay. family. No, this isn't the guy who... Who played her father in the Victorian era No, episodes. no, this, this is her is actual father. <laughs> actual father, okay. Yeah. Uh, so he hears more screaming, and he gets his shotgun, and he's trying to find his companion, and he trips backwards over a tree stump, and then we see the shadow of something kind of Yeti-like go across the tent. <laughs> and the next thing we see, it throws the shotgun, which is now bent in half, into the fire. And now the TARDIS has landed, and they're looking out at the mountains, and the doctor is all excited, and he wants to find a, a thing called a ganta, uh, which I'm probably not pronouncing quite correct, but it's a Tibetan bell that he thinks uh, will be very important uh, mm. in this location. And he says it will guarantee all of them yeah. a, the welcome of a lifetime. <laughs> yeah, and he's rummaging through a big chest, you know, where he keeps all his knickknacks and weird wardrobe stuff. Yeah, with this doctor at the start of a number of the stories, they, they start by going through this chest and, and pulling out things that are relevant to the story, right? So he finds a fur coat and puts it on, and this coat is going to become very important. <laughs> yeah, this is a big a big shaggy thing, like one of those old raccoon coats that the frat kids would wear. Yeah, the, the kind of stuff they throw them. blood on you for nowadays and all that, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So he wants Jamie and Victoria to keep looking for the bell, and he goes outside. 
and uh, they're watching on the monitor, and uh, then they see a hairy beastie. <laughs> they get all concerned, but it turns out to be the doctor. So, uh, which you know, only the first time it's going to happen. Um, yeah. They then find the bell. You know, it's a. When we say bell, it's not like a huge bell. It fits into a little bag. It's a. No, uh, we don't actually see it now. We just see the bag. Yeah. Maybe eight or ten inches. Yeah. Outside, the doctor finds a huge footprint, which is, as we mentioned, you know, it's very similar to a previous story. After finding the footprint, he comes back into the TARDIS and says he's going to go out to this monastery that he knows is here, but he doesn't want them to come along with him. And he won't say anything. Uh, he lies and says there's nothing to worry about. And he leaves and takes the bell <laughs> with him. And as he's leaving, we see a Yeti watching him leave. And the doctor comes across the camp we saw earlier, and he finds a backpack, and he finds a dead body nearby. Um, he takes the backpack, and he walks to the monastery, and nobody answers his knocks, but the door creaks open. And inside is a courtyard with a Buddha statue. I was really impressed with the animation overall. I think they did a really good job in this. I don't know if it's the same company that's done the last mm -hmm. several that we watched. I'm, I'm, I think it's maybe a little different style. I'm not sure. To me, to me, the character style has a lot of that sort of archerish look that we've yeah. seen in the other animations. But, but I could be wrong. It's well done, and they sort of you know the backgrounds in the Himalayas are, are all sort of painted and you know look pretty nice. And then this Buddha statue looks great, and I'm pretty I'm pretty confident what they're doing here, and and with some other stuff we'll see is. The Buddha is, a, I think, a 3D uh, thing they've done in a, you know, in a graphics engine and put in there yeah. because it, it just, it's a little too 3D just to be a drawn 2D thing, but it looks really good, I think. Um, mm. Yeah, that could be. I didn't, uh, I didn't spot that, but it could be. Yeah, and the courtyard itself looks really nice. And there's a lot of the nice design stuff and everything. Uh, and mm. uh, after looking around for a bit, the doctor is confronted by some monks and by Travers, the guy we saw earlier. One of the things they did nicely in the animation for the monks in this, uh, you know, I looked at some of the photos of the actual shooting, is their their costumes are a little nicer and authentic. And the co their costumes, the shoulders kind of go out, you know, uh, where in the actual show it was just, you know, it was just a shirt. They were wearing like a T-shirt or something. But mm. And uh, they have things like ponytails on the top of their head, which weren't in the actual show. So I think they actually – one of the things they did with this was they took people who were pretty much – you know, British people playing Tibetans, and they kind of made the characters more authentically, you know, ethnic. Yeah, I was, I was wondering uh, if they had, uh, if they had uh, Tibeted it up a little bit for the, <laughs> yeah. uh, for the animation, because I could, I could easily imagine the BBC just casting uh, ordinary British folk as <laughs> yep. all the, as all the monks. So these monks and Travers are looking at the doctor, and Travers says the backpack that the doctor has proves that he's the one who killed his companion. The monks are like, wait, you told us that a beast attacked, you know, your friend. And he says, well, I thought it was a beast, but I felt the hair. And obviously this doctor's coat was that hair, right? So, uh, the doctor chose, didn't chose well, even though he, I mean, he chose wisely in terms of having a warm coat, but uh, not so much in terms of. Yeah, it was suitable. Him. Yeah. And the head monk of this group, who we'll find out is a warrior uh, named uh, Chrysong, says there have been several attacks recently, and if the doctor is responsible, he's going to be punished. So the doctor is taken away and held in the room. So he, he expected this big welcome. 
And because, uh, you know, I mean, yeah. what we'll see over time is that like hundreds of years ago, he was here and he thought they would be happy to see him. Mm. Meanwhile, Jamie and Victoria left the TARDIS and they find a cave in the rocks and there's wooden beams in the cave. So clearly it's, you know, not just a natural cave. And as they explore, a huge round rock is rolled in front of the cave entrance, trapping them. Yeah, just like like the burial of Jesus. <laughs> we see the doctor in a cell, which is just basically a bedroom. They're probably keeping him in. but um, And he's looking for ways out. And at the door, you know, talking through a, the window in the door, Travers tells him there's a 100-foot drop outside the window and there's no way out. And he wants to know how the doctor tracked him down. And what we find out is he thinks the doctor is one of those wretched newspaper men who laughed at him in, his, in the press for his theories. If he were correct, he'd have a good reason uh, for getting the doctor executed. But, uh, you know, he hasn't tracked down all the evidence that he should have. <laughs> yeah, and it's just funny because I... I'm watching some of the early like stop motion. One of the one of the most important early stop motion films is called The Lost World, which was based on a Conan Doyle story. And you know, yeah, the whole idea of like, oh, the scientist who has this theory or has seen the uh, dinosaurs are alive, and everybody laughs at him. And so the whole movie is about him mm. going to prove that he's right and and everything. So there's a lot of. Uh, <laughs> In British science fiction, the whole, you know, the scientist who's who's trying to prove himself right and the, you know, the wretched newspaper men who are laughing at him sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so for 20 years, Travers has been searching for the Yeti, and he's spent all of his money on this final expedition to prove that he's right. And the doctor points out it could have been the Yeti that attacked his camp, and Travers says, no, they're timid creatures that wouldn't attack. And this is very consistent. Everybody who knows about Yeti in this story, he seems to say that they are timid uh, creatures. He says the doctor is trying to steal his glory. Yeah. The doctor points out that whoever killed his companion had enormous strength, and obviously the doctor does not. And clearly, Travers realizes that he has a point there, so he just doesn't want, doesn't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the monks are in the courtyard discussing what to do. Four of their brothers have been slaughtered. They thought it was the Yeti. But they also know the Yeti are rarely seen and timid, you know, what's caused them to become savage. And the chief warrior, Krysong, wants to prove it by testing the doctor. (laughs) Apparently, this is one of those drown the witch tests that, you know, no matter what happens, (laughs) it's not going to go well for the person being tested. Mm. And the other monks are against it because, you know, they say, we don't don't murder people. Uh, They say, only the abbot can decide. But the warrior decides to take matters into his own hands. Meanwhile, in the cave, Jamie is walking along with his sword, and he comes across a stacked set of metal balls, and they're kind of stacked in a pyramid, and they sort of look like cannonballs, and yeah. sort of, there's a glowy thing about them. And then the rock at the entrance is rolled away, and a yeti comes in. And Jamie brought a sword along, and so he tries to defend himself and Victoria with the sword, but it just breaks it in half with no problem. And Victoria screams, and it's the end of the episode. <laughs> yeah. Not a lot happened in it, although I, I do, uh, I enjoyed it, the episode, more than I expected to. So. Yeah, it's a uh, it's moderately interesting start. <laughs> <laughs> episode two starts off with this cliffhanger. The snowman's coming into the tunnel, and uh, Jamie... 
uses his half a sword to knock down one of the mine's support beams. So it must be uh, pretty old and flimsy, I guess, because uh, a support beam should be pretty pretty sturdy normally. But he manages to cave in the tunnel on the snowman, and we see one of its claws is sticking out of the rock pile. So he's he's good and finished, apparently. They find that stack of cannonballs, and Jamie takes one. He's confident that the snowman is dead, but then when they leave, it starts moving and gets out of the rock pile, and it chases them. Now, one thing I didn't mention, though, is, you know, I really do like their animation, both the background animation, the, you know, painted mountains and everything, and uh, and the, the people in this, but they... They pretty much stuck to what the Yeti actually looked like in the show, and it's a little unfortunate because they're just, I don't know, like big teddy bears or something. They're just, uh, they you know, I don't think they're supposed yeah. to look terrifying. They're very uh, uh, rotund. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're they're just these. Um, they're they're kind of like uh, if you imagined a really roly poly Bigfoot, but then instead of having a face, it has this big darker patch of fur that goes from like the forehead down to the mid middle of the chest you know it's kind of like a beard almost mm. and that's in lieu of a face it's just a big beard <laughs> but yeah they're uh they're a little comical looking but but then again <laughs> that may be meant to to emphasize what everybody has been saying that they're mm. sort of timid mm-hmm. and uh you know because these are uh this is not a ferocious-looking xeno xenomorph-type uh, monster. You know, this right. is sort of a cuddly-looking looking monster. So, doctor, the doctor is in the, his guest room back at the monastery. He's got a little straw mat bed that he sleeps on, and he's sitting there playing "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star" on his recorder. So he's. He's brought the recorder out again, but, uh, you know, it's just a brief little interlude. I'm not going to complain about it. <laughs> One of the monks, Thon Me, comes in to summon the doctor. doctor asks him what's going on. And uh, Thon Me, and, and he asks just in general what's going on, you know, what's the, what's the situation at the monastery. Apparently the monastery is under some kind of attack or siege from the Yeti. They've... Uh, you know, Thon Me doesn't give out a lot of details, but uh, the Yeti had been causing trouble recently, and they don't usually do that. The doctor says he knows of the attack in 1630, uh, when the Ganta Bell was taken, and uh, <laughs> he was the one who took it, so uh makes <laughs> sense. And he's about to reveal that he has this bell, but just then Chrisong arrives. He wants to know what's the holdup. He gets pushy. And, you know, tells everybody to get moving. The doctor stashes the bell under his sleeping mat, and he has time to tip off Thon Me to uh, to check it out. So Thon Me lags behind and investigates, and he's shocked to discover this sacred bell. They never indicate, at least in what we've seen, they don't indicate what time period we're in. But so presumably it was. Uh, contemporary when the show went out, you know, 1960s, which would have meant that this would have yeah. been you know, like 900 years or earlier or something that uh, that the bell was stolen, you know? Yeah, yeah. Travers, Travers looks like a contemporary guy, you know, so if they're not in the 1960s, they're not too far from it. And uh, out outside, 
Victoria and Jamie are fleeing the snowman, which is very, very slowly <laughs> pursuing them. You know, we we see them, uh, you know, panting and exhausted, and uh, you know, we've got to run. And and then you see the animation, the snowman in the background, just ambling toward them. <laughs> it's uh, not the most suspenseful, but but you know, there that can be used to good effect, like. Uh, that movie it follows you know it's something that's just slow and steady mm. uh, but it doesn't stop yeah i guess the snowman could be sinister but it sure <laughs> doesn't look that way in, in the in the scenes we get here so the doctor is taken out to the courtyard of the monastery and Rinchen, he's a monk with glasses he argues with Kersong about the unapproved execution, because Kersong isn't waiting for permission from the abbot. He's just going to go through with this. Now, technically, it's not an execution, uh, but Rin Chan refers to it as though it is. You know, it's basically murder, he says. Well, yeah, they're going to put the doctor out as bait, right? And somehow they'll yeah. know, you know, whenever the Eddie show, show up, somehow they'll know whether the doctor is connected to them or not and figure out whether to save him or not. But it sounds like pretty much, you know, he probably won't have much chance. Right. Yeah, that turns out this is where Krisong reveals that this is his plan to use him as bait for the Yeti. And if the Yeti come to rescue the doctor, then we'll know the truth that the doctor really is in cahoots with her, you know, making them, uh, provoking them to this recent violence. So Thun Me brings the sacred bell to the abbot, uh, and the abbot has a kind of wacky hat. It's <laughs> pretty mean, you know. It's sort of like a crescent moon where the tip comes out in front, sort of like a big horn. He's sort of breaking the rules because to, in order to bring the bell to the abbot, he goes to a room that no one's supposed to go to. Yeah. Yeah, this is sort of off limits to the hoi polloi. But from a room behind the abbot, uh, this voice confirms that this is indeed the last ganta. And the abbot says this is the voice of the master Padmasambhava, uh, who I will be referring to as the master here on out. And the master says, so he has returned, meaning the doctor. And the master summons them both into his room, and Thunmi goes in with uh, apparent apprehension because this is something that's not not a place he's usually supposed to be going. But the master assures him it's okay. Meanwhile, at the gate, the doctor is tied up there, and he's hanging by his wrists. You know, his feet are on the ground, so he's not just hanging, but uh, they've got ropes up on the roof of the monastery, uh, you know, keeping him. Keeping him tied up. And out in the wilderness, uh, Jamie and Victoria think they've shaken off the Yeti. They've, it's lost their trail. Uh, and just then Travers finds them, the great hunter, and they uh, they reveal that they're with the doctor. And he, uh, he sounds pretty uh, unhappy to hear about that. But uh, they warn him about the great hairy beastie. And they're not familiar with the term Yeti that he uses. And it's evident, finally, to him that they aren't here for the Yeti. They're here for God knows what reason. <laughs> so they work out a deal eventually. Jamie will show Travers the cave where he found this hairy beastie. But first, Travers has to take them to the monastery. Meanwhile, back at the monastery, the uh, the master is sitting behind a gauzy curtain, so we don't get a good look at him, but from the profile that we see, his head looks uh, skeletal. You know, it's it's one step away from being just a skull. 
He says the doctor must be treated with respect and kindness. He sends Thon Me to Chrisong to release the doctor on the abbot's orders. Uh, he orders him to attribute those orders to the abbot and forget all about the master, forget about seeing him and hearing him and all that stuff. And apparently, now, the way Thon Me reacts to this suggests that this isn't just a wink-wink, you-never-saw-me type thing. Mm. The master is actually doing something to cleanse his, you know, to make him forget, like mm. the little men in black device. So after after Thon Me leaves, uh, the master's voice seems to grow a bit more sinister. And he says the doctor must not learn of this great plan that the master and the abbot are pursuing, or he must not learn of the powers that guide them. And we won't learn about that either, <laughs> for a while anyway, apparently, if we ever do. Not in the first three episodes. So the men in the monastery cry out that the Yeti are coming toward the gate, but it turns out that it's actually Jamie and Victoria and Travers. Feng Mi brings orders to Krisong from the abbot, tells him that the bell is returned, the sacred ganta. Krisong asks the doctor, why did you not tell me you know, that you were here to re re return the sacred bell? Uh, and the doctor says, well, you wouldn't have listened anyway. <laughs> and uh, it's probably true. Uh, so he releases the doctor. Meanwhile, the master and abbot are in their private discussion, and he, uh, the master tells the abbot there's little time left now to carry out their plan. If the doctor is interfering, his life could be in great danger. <laughs> and uh, this sounds like kind of a veiled threat, but it could also be referring to there are other factors that could be putting his life in danger. Mm -hmm. It's not entirely clear. Mm -hmm. So Jamie shows the doctor the cannonball that he retrieved in the uh, in the mine or the tunnel. The doctor looks it over, and then he sets it down at the base of this big Buddha statue that he mentioned earlier. Uh, it's just kind of sitting there. He finds a stable spot for it so it doesn't roll away. Yeah, I also Not mentioned, anyway. uh, I'm pretty sure that they're doing the same thing with the balls that, they, that I think they did with the monk, which is, these are actually oh, the 3D. 3D effect. Yeah. Um, yeah, they do They do have that look to them. Yeah. Sort of like, a, I guess you'd call it cell-shaded, like the Borderlands video game type <laughs> thing, you know, where it's, uh, it's 3D made to look like a cartoon. Mm -hmm. And... They're interrupted now. Uh, after he sets down this cannonball, the group of them are interrupted by a monk who's calling for Crissong. And he's calling for Crissong because three yeti are approaching the monastery. Travers tells Crissong they're timid. They wouldn't attack anyone. Which, uh, you know, he keeps saying this, but he's not, not actually met any of them. <laughs> so I don't know why he's so sure about that. The doctor wants to capture one and examine it. Jamie says he has an idea, but the doctor the doctor says this is a case where discretion is the better part of valor, and he just leads Victoria away, just blows Jamie off entirely. <laughs> Jamie's just standing there ready to explain his great plan. And the abbot tells Rinchen, meanwhile, that things are going to be okay, and the doctor comes in and assures the abbot of his goodwill and all that. Everybody's happy for a minute. The Yeti approaches the gate, and so you've got six men around the entrance, including Jamie. You've got basically three on each side of the entrance, and he ignores them entirely. He just walks right for the entrance gate, 
And the Yeti walks right over a net that's laid out on the ground. The monks up on the roof haul up the ropes, and the Yeti's captured. And obviously the the net was uh, Jamie's plan there, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so he did. He just took it upon himself to go and execute it. And it turned out to be a good plan, actually, because it works out flawlessly. Except that it kills the Yeti in the process, which wasn't (laughs) expected, but... uh, uh, it does at least render it harmless. Mm-hmm. And at this, the other two Yeti turn around and just walk off. They head back into the mountains. So the monks and Jamie, they drag the Yeti in the net inside. But we see now that uh, just outside the gate, it's left one of these metal balls behind, one of these cannonballs that we mm-hmm. saw. And it starts to glow and it sinks into the snow a little bit, although it's still exposed. Meanwhile, a monk walks by the Buddha statue, and he spots the other ball sitting there. So he picks it up and looks at it curiously for a moment, but then he sets it back down and goes on his way. And the Yeti is now laid on a table for examination in one of the rooms of the monastery. It turns out soon enough that it's actually a robot. It's not an organic creature at all under all that fur. And under that fur beard, that dark patch that we talked about, there's this hemispherical socket. It's a socket that a ball is supposed to go into, but now it's empty. And as soon as we learn this, we see that back at the base of the Buddha statue, the metal ball sitting there that the doctor had set there after Jamie showed it to him, it begins beeping and whistling, and it starts rolling under its own power like a like that orange droid in the new Star Wars movies that's just like a ball with a head, except this one doesn't have a head. It's just a ball. Yep. And that's the uh, not-so-thrilling cliffhanger at the end of this episode. (laughs) Episode three. The Doctor wants to go... Well, the Doctor has figured out that it must have been a ball that was supposed to go into the Yeti, and he wants to go find what he calls the Yeti's control unit, but... Chrysong, the warrior guy, refuses to allow it. And Travers says, oh, I'm going to leave and get some shut-eye, which is obviously not true. Uh, And he tells Chrysong that the fact that these are robots actually proves him right, because the actual Yeti are peaceful, and they must not have been attacking the monastery, and he needs to go find them. So they try to find the, the ball, the control unit, that the doctor had left near the statue, but there's nothing there. And they think Maybe Travers took the ball when he walked out. Meanwhile, the monks have put a spirit trap around the Yeti, and they debate its nature. So by spirit spirit trap, it's just some ropes <laughs> that they've kind of strung around it to keep it from, I get, well, I don't think they're trying to keep it from physically yeah, getting out. I think they're trying to keep... It's it's just, a, yeah, it's a few ropes. It's kind of almost like a wrestling ring or a boxing ring, you know, but uh, on a smaller scale. <laughs> And they talk about how such a being is against nature, and the abbot and Chrysong debate what to do, and the abbot insists there is a clear path, they just don't know what it is yet. The doctor shows up and tells the abbot that Travers has left, and he did it with the brilliant plan of telling the guard that he had permission to leave. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> I think the monastery has some security he... issues. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's uh, I think that's how not sure got out of the prison in idiocracy. He just went <laughs> up to a guard and says, "Yeah, I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to be in the other line." <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, the doctor and Chrysong leave, and the abbot now goes into a trance and is talking to his master. And he leaves to go to the Holy Sanctum. So the Holy Sanctum is that room where the skeletal guy is um, with the voice. And Victoria wants to follow him, but Bon Mi, or is it Bon Mi? No, it's a, <laughs> bon Mi is a, it's a sandwich. <laughs> it's, it's on me, I was yeah. thinking I'd heard that before. <laughs> Victoria wants to follow him, but the boy Thonmi stops her. In the courtyard, the doctor and Jamie are trying to convince Chrysong to let them go and find the ball. And Chrysong says, no, he'll go, and he walks outside. And meanwhile, we see the master. One of the things we start seeing is that the master has this kind of board game-like thing in front of him, which shows an outline of mm -hmm. the monastery and the area outside, and he has these pieces that stand up that are yeti pieces and he can move them around and he's moving yeti pieces on the board the abbot is headed toward the sanctum where he is and victoria is following the abbot and thonmi stops her and the master then tells the abbot when he arrives that the yeti shouldn't have been brought in to the monastery that was a mistake the one that they had captured and the master must make sure the plan is imperiled no more so he moves two yeti pieces on the board to the right outside the monastery. And outside, just as Chrysong has found the buried ball outside the monastery, two yetis approach. So we know they move very slowly, but it didn't seem to take them long to get there after the master uh, moved their pieces. <laughs> yeah, you know. they're just suddenly there. And they struggle with Chrysong until they manage to take the ball, after which they leave. And now we see the master place a third yeti piece with them, and he tells the abbot to take a—it's a hand-sized pyramid thing, and he needs to take it to the caves. And this will cause the great intelligence to focus on this planet. And the master says it will soon take physical form, and its wanderings in space will be at an end, at which point the master's work will be done. The doctor and Chrysong and company debate what the yetis were doing when they took the ball. And they realized they were really after the ball, and they didn't want the doctor examining it. And... Uh, that the original Yeti who showed up must have been after the ball that Jamie and Victoria had brought from the cave. And uh, the doctor says the sound the balls make is a signal, and signals can be tracked if he can just get back to the TARDIS. Uh, and surprisingly, Chrysong, who, you know, he's kind of set up to be our, our standard bad guy of the group, right? But he says, you know, mm -hmm. he failed, so now he has to trust the doctor and he'll let him go. So apparently he's not such a bad guy. Mm -mm. Outside, we see Travers, you know, who had, who had left earlier by just saying he was allowed to leave. <laughs> he, he's watching two <laughs> Yeti walking, one holding a ball. Meanwhile, the abbot approaches the door to the outside of the monastery, and he hypnotizes the guard. <laughs> this is the, you know, the original, uh, you know, these aren't the droids you're looking for or whatever, because he just sort of waves his hand at the guard and tells him he won't remember that the abbot came through. And then he walks outside. Meanwhile, Victoria has been taken to her bedroom slash cell. And, you know, again, security problems here because Thonmi is supposed to be guarding her. But he agrees to go and get her some food. And then she just leaves when he's gone because he decided he didn't. <laughs> he, he actually said in there he didn't need to lock her door. He trusted her, which, you know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, I was thinking of that line from uh, Animal House. <laughs> you fucked up. You trusted us. <laughs> Well, the whole place needs a security review. <laughs> it makes you think, you know, uh, Sam Jones, who who played um, Flash in the Flash Gordon movie, which, which is a movie I love, 
And uh, he, that act, the actor Sam Jones uh, became a securities consultant. So maybe, maybe we could mix the universes here and bring him in. <laughs> so uh, outside, the doctor and Jamie are watching the three Yetis that are just standing there and they're not doing anything. So the doctor and Jamie leave to head to the TARDIS. And after they leave, we see the abbot appear and the Yetis follow him. Meanwhile, Thon Mi realizes Victoria has left her room, and we see she's gone to that, that secret room, the Sanctorum, and the weird guy, the skeletal guy, tells her to leave. Meanwhile, the ball that they had brought back has sort of been rolling around, you know, I guess trying to find where it's supposed to go, and we see the ball go to the room with the deactivated Yeti, and as Victoria comes in, the ball goes into the Yeti's chest. And Victoria screams as the Yeti comes to life and breaks through the spirit barrier thingies, and it's the end of the episode. Yeah, yeah, spirit barriers probably don't work well in robots in general, <laughs> I would guess. So that's the first half of we've watched so now, what we've watched so far now. I yeah. would say, I, well, except maybe the last episode, which felt like a lot of mostly filler to me, um, it was hard for me to kind of keep track of to some degree what was going on. But um, like I said, I was, uh, I went into it thinking, okay, it's just going to be silly Yeti things, but in part just because the execution of the animation, I just really enjoyed the animation. And, uh, yeah. you know, um, I don't know. I, I enjoyed it more than I expected to. I, I really don't know where it's going. You know, and I'm, I'm pretty confident this could have been a four-episode story. It's a six-episode story. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, thank you for saving me the breath. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of balls rolling around and, you know, um, Yeti walking slowly and that sort of thing. But uh, Yeah, we have some outer space intelligence that may or may not be malign. Yeah. Out of unknowns at this point. Yep. <laughs> Two weeks later. So episode four, and Victoria yells for Thon Me, and he comes in with a staff to protect her from the snowman. Now, in my notes, I keep going back and forth between whether to call them Yeti or snowmen, but since we know now that they're robots, uh, you know, I sort of was calling them snowmen because they're not actual Yeti, but uh, it yeah. doesn't matter. It'll go back and forth. Or you could just call them the fat robots. <laughs> yeah. I will say, you know, as I said, I really like the animation and everything, but they were pretty faithful to how the Yeti looked in the show, and they are pretty silly, right? They are pretty <laughs> big, furry, you know, uh, things that don't yeah, seem very scary. Kind of like weebles with arms and legs. Yeah. So the snowman just bats away on these efforts and uh, makes his way to the courtyard where... The warriors are trying to hold him off, but he knocks out several of them. And then uh, Thonmi and Victoria open the gates and let him out because he's just laying waste to everybody. Elsewhere on the mountain, Travers is hidden behind rocks, and he sees Sansing accompanying the snowmen and bringing the pyramid thingy into the cave. And we have this one of these caves where we're going back and forth and back and forth, so I try to kind of unroll some of these so I'm <laughs> not constantly yeah. jerking back and forth. Uh, and now Jamie and the doctor approach the TARDIS, but it's guarded by a snowman. And the doctor throws a rock at the snowman, and it doesn't react. And he says it's either switched off or not receiving, so he's running up to it. Now, a funny thing in this whole story that I think is sort of out of character is that 
For some reason in this whole story, Jamie is sort of the coward. So he's always the one saying, oh, we got to worry about this or don't do that or whatever, which, you know, he's supposed to be the warrior, the Scottish warrior, et cetera. So I don't think it really fits his personality. Yeah. But he's also seen how powerful these robots are. So yeah. I don't know. Uh, so they go up to the snowman and the doctor uses a screwdriver to open the chest flap so they can get the control ball out. <laughs> Meanwhile, in his sanctuary, the master is stroking a hairy snowman statue, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> He's asking how long before his body will be released from the servitude. So something we start to figure out here that I think was, you know, was unclear previously on purpose, right? Like, it, the situation with this guy, and I can't say his name. It's Padmana or something or another, right? But it's also the master. Padma Samava or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, sometimes he seems good and then he's bad and you don't know what's going on. And we sort of start to figure out that, oh, this guy is being controlled. And, you know, I think what we learn over time is that 300 years ago, the doctor became friends with him when he visited this monastery. And this guy's still alive and there's some other thing controlling him, right? And you, so you're kind of, which version of him it is, you always have to figure it out. Yeah. So he, uh, the thing we start seeing here is he wants to know how long before his body will be released from servitude. So basically, it's sort of like, was it Job uh, who died in the Bible and then came back? and um, Lazarus. La Lazarus, right. And if you see the uh, Martin, you know, Martin Scorsese version of that, it was interesting, right? Because he came back to life, but he was kind of a zombie. He was like, you know, flies buzzing around him and, you know, his skin was kind of dead and all that. So he wasn't wasn't really back to life. The master wants to know when his body's going to be released from this servitude, and he apparently gets an answer saying soon. But it's in order to do that, it's going to involve something happening to the others, but we don't know what that is. In the cave, San Sing brings the pyramid to the collection of balls and places it in the center. And Travers sees him go down the mountain with the snowman after he's done this. So Travers heads into the cave. And the pyramid and balls emit an intense sound. And the pyramid starts growing veiny tentacle things. <laughs> this is all so uh, uh, sexual or so inappropriate. That I don't know how to describe it. But at the TARDIS, the doctor has gone in to get his generically useful machine. I don't, we may not have described it when we talked about the first episode, but as they kind of do with this doctor, you know, in the first episode, they'll always start out by going through this trunk and pulling stuff out and everything they pulls out will, and everything they pull out will turn out to be significant, you know, in the show. So in the first episode, uh, he pulled out this machine with a bunch of wires that were sort of half connected, et cetera. And there was no apparent purpose for it. And he couldn't remember what it was for, but, right. but it turns out to be useful. So, uh, the doctor now goes in and gets the generically useful machine and <laughs> brings it out. And uh, the ball they have starts pulsing. Oh, right. So they have this Yeti slash snowman standing there with the open chest, right? With no ball in it. Right. And Jamie's holding this ball and the ball starts pulling towards the Yeti. And so Jamie's being pulled towards it. And... When he lets go of the ball, it flies toward the snowman's chest. And the doctor uses his hand to block it from going in, which is painful, of course, because the ball like smacks into mm. his, his hand. 
I'd be curious how this looked. I mean, there's a number of things they do in the animation here where I'm sure it doesn't look so good in the the real one. But uh, this, you know, this is that kind of thing where it's hard to imagine they could have made it look good. Yeah. Yeah, they probably would have had, uh, like, the doctor actually was holding holding the ball and had to make it look like he was struggling against it, like struggling to get his hand Mm. out from underneath it. Right. And so Jamie manages to help the doctor lodge the ball loose, and the doctor now realizes the balls are programmed to return to their snowman. And so they they now realize that ball they originally found in the monastery wasn't actually moved by someone else. It must have moved itself because it was trying to find its its snowman, its yeti. And they outsmart the ball by putting a, a rock in the slot where the ball's supposed to go. Uh, once, yeah, that's right. Yep. Once the slot is full of a rock, then it seems to lose interest. <laughs> in the monastery, Chrysong is blaming Thonmi and Victoria for violating orders and letting the snowman go, even though he was, you know, beating the crap out of everybody. <laughs> so if he'd stayed, no doubt they would have died. Uh, Victoria takes responsibility. She says it was her idea. I will say in this story, she does have a couple of points. As we'll see, I mean, we saw oh, that's later. Okay, as we'll see, where she um, has is proactive, you know, because she's a pretty mm-hmm. passive character overall, being the kind of Victorian maid, right? Well, that's yeah. her name. <laughs> so, <laughs> And now, you know, we've had a couple of the wise men, a couple of the older men have usually sort of said things that made sense. But one of them believes that Victoria is responsible for breathing life into the snowman. And he just, as we'll see, he won't give up on this idea. He starts calling her names and, you know, believes she's sort of behind everything. And he's, it's one of the things where you're kind of like, eh, I think uh, you might have some problem with women. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, meanwhile, though, Chrysong has Thonmi and Victoria locked up just to be safe. Meanwhile, the doctor and Jamie hear another kind of signal being sent to the ball. They're not sure what it is, but the doctor is working to find out where the transmitter is. So he's he's using his generic machine to try and triangulate the signal. Yeah, and uh, we won't actually, he won't actually discover it till the end of the next episode. So uh, there's lots of that's well, a stretching out the story coming there. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's a six-episode story, and, you know, it's very rare that you can't cover everything in four. So, as we'll see. I mean, I like yeah. this story, but, yes, it didn't need to be six. But, you know, we, as we said, we, there's always some kind of reason things have to be however long they are, right? There's a lot of production things behind that. So the yeah. the needs of the story are, are, are last on the list of <laughs> why you determine <laughs> how many episodes there are. So Victoria and Thonmi are talking in their cell, and Thonmi tells her a stranger took the sacred bell hundreds of years ago to keep it safe during a time of trouble, and Victoria realizes it was the doctor. He took the bell 300 years ago, as <laughs> the bell turned mm-hmm. Now, one thing I think is disappointing in the story, and, I, and again, overall, I like the story, but they really missed an opportunity, which is the bell has no meaning in this story. Yeah, it doesn't actually do anything. Yeah, imagine. So there's this uh, pyramid. We just talked about the guy taking to the balls. What if that had been the original bell? And what if the master had been waiting for the original bell to come back so that they could then activate, right? Then that Mm. bell would have all this meaning and all this impact on the story. But no, it's just a bell. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
So Chrysong asks the wise dudes where Sun Sing is, and uh, they don't know, but they assume he's talking to the master. And now, this is interesting, because Chrysong gets very skeptical. Does the master even exist? We only hear about him, you know, through Sun Sing. And an interesting arc we see here with Chrysong which is unusual in Doctor Who, right? Because usually he sort of has been the bad guy, right? Who's messing mm. things up and kind of nasty and all this. And like in Marco Polo and some of the others, well, that guy just keeps being the bad guy throughout. But this one of those cases where, no, nah, he's just doing his job. And and he he even then is be, is willing to be skeptical of San Singh and the master and all that, like, because it doesn't make sense. Like he's not brainwashed. He's, you know, and, and as we'll see, he actually becomes a better and better person in the story. Once he realizes what the truth is. Mm-hmm. So after everybody leaves the courtyard, San Singh bangs on the door from the outside and the guard lets him in and San Singh hypnotizes him to forget that he opened the door or saw San Singh. So we know something bad's going on there. He then goes to the master, and the master says the great intelligence is beginning to take on a form, but it still needs to expand. And this means the monks must leave the monastery. So I guess it's going to have to expand and take over all this space. The doctor and Jamie are going along with the doctor's machine, trying to triangulate this signal, and they run into, you know, Yeti and get surrounded by them. The doctor gives Jamie the machine, takes the ball, and tells Jamie to run, run like the wind. And there is a, as we'll see over the decades in Doctor Who, there is this funny little repetition of, when I tell you to run, run, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think we've seen it a few times already, if I remember right. Yeah, so Jamie runs, and the doctor rolls the ball to the snowmen, and they focus on the ball and lose interest in the humans. Meanwhile, Victoria and Thonmi are in their cell, and a guard brings in drink and food. Uh, Victoria drinks, and then she says it tastes funny, and then she faints while telling Thonmi he shouldn't touch the drinks. So, the guard leaves to get water, and Thonmi checks out the drink. And while he's doing that, Victoria gets up and leaves. <laughs> so this was all um, a trick on her part, which, again, is a, you know her being a little more proactive than uh, we've seen her be before. So that's good. Yeah. Now, didn't she, in the Tomb of the Cybermen, didn't she pick up a gun at one point and turn it on the bad lady? She did, you know, and the, but then she put the gun on the floor where the bad lady could pick it up whenever she wanted to. <laughs> yep. So San Singh is now telling everyone they have to leave the monastery. McChrysung says, wait, the doctor has returned with equipment that will help us defeat the monsters. Then the monks are informed that Victoria has escaped, and... Again, you know, that wise monk, or formerly wise monk who has it in for Victoria, <laughs> describes her as the devil woman. She's behind everything. <laughs> Elsewhere, Chrysong is talking to the doctor and Jamie, and he now clearly trusts them. And there's a banging on the monastery door, and Travers comes in in bad shape and tries to describe the pyramid he saw. The monks come in and want the doctor and company imprisoned, but Chrysong now refuses, saying they can help and that Travers is ill. So Chrysong is now totally on their side. But Songston overrides Chrysong and, you know, the crew is taken away. Songston says the master is telling everyone to leave the monastery. Chrysong says they're not going to leave. And now 
And this is kind of interesting because normally we've seen all the communication between Songston and the Master B in the sacred room where the actual guy's body is. But now Songston prays for advice from the Master and the Master communicates to him that everyone must be driven from the monastery. So he is able to sort of communicate telepathically or something. So Songston sends the guard away and unbars the monastery door because, you know, He's got. Uh, he's been told to do this by the master. Meanwhile, Victoria, having escaped her prison, has made her way to the sacred room. The master lets her in, and he says, "Come in. You have no alternative." And it's the end of the episode. Okay, so at the beginning of this episode, we get a recap, and it's interesting. The master really changes up his line delivery here, because at the end of the last episode, he was like. You have no alternative. <laughs> and Harry just says, to, you have no alternative. I, I actually huh? had to turn on the captions to see what he was saying. I couldn't tell. <laughs> <laughs> so at the beginning of this episode, he delivers that line a lot more straightforwardly. Just, you have no alternative. We get a good look at his face, and it's... um. He, his cadaver is very gaunt. He looks almost like a mummy's face. Uh, in the art style here, it's interesting how they approached it because, you know, we've discussed before that the, the company that's doing this animation, uh, their characters tend to have a certain, at least in my mind, a certain resemblance to the artwork from Archer, uh, which is cartoony, but it's also somewhat realistic and detailed. Um, but this face is just, I mean, it's like something a kid could have drawn. You know, the lines are very thick, very crude. And his mouth, it's, it's like a straight line, except on one side, it curves way up like a, like a smirk. It's just got a lot less detail overall than the other characters' faces. And my, theory about this is that they didn't want to make him look too scary you know even though he's a very old man now and you know cadaverous and so forth uh, uh but they they wanted to make him look scary enough that when the intelligence is controlling him he'd be a little scary uh but but when he's back to his own self he still looks he has that sort of a uh, smirking smile that can make him look like somebody that you could understand the doctor could be a friend of. So that's my theory why the art style is so different for this character here. Uh, so I spent some time, I was curious, and I spent some time looking around for images of what the actual actor looked like. And this is a case where this is their, the animation interpretation of what they wanted to do. It doesn't look anything like what the actual character did in the show. The actual character huh. just looked like a normal human with some stuff on his face. Huh. And I think that they decided, you know, this is a guy who's been kept alive against his will for 300 years. Let's make him into this combination of kind of a mummy and a zombie, right? Um, yeah. And also with kind of the scariness you were talking about. So uh, I think it's <laughs> reasonably interesting, uh, certainly more interesting than if he had just kind of looked like a normal human <laughs> so. yeah yeah it is uh, i mean it, it, it's memorable it's i'm not complaining about it it's just uh it seemed noteworthy to me because it's like the only exception that i can recall in these episodes yeah well the other the characters style. 
the other character faces look particularly good. They look reasonably realistic while still being animation, you know, and, mm-hmm. and again, it doesn't, don't have any of the oddness we saw in the, uh, some of the early animation, like the reign of terror where their eyes would go all over the place and, and stuff. No, mm, I mean, yeah. you know, everyone looks pretty realistic and good. And this guy stands out cause he's so bizarre. And, and, uh, like I say, yeah, I think yeah. it fits into the story of the idea of here's someone who's been kept in their body for hundreds of years after they should have died. You know? Yeah, yeah, I think it it works all right, I think. So the master tells Victoria the courtyard is empty, and he shows her one of his Yeti pawns from his chessboard. And this is something I don't have a great deal of experience with, but I have seen the memes and whatnot. Um, And to me, the the Yeti pawns look a lot like butt plugs. You know, they've got a little base, and then they sort of swell out, and then they taper off. And I don't know. It's I have no just... comment. <laughs> I will say there's a, a future episode we'll see where there is an alien who is a penis. <laughs> so, oh, nice. Yeah, and then and the funny thing, and I'm sure I'll retell the story when we get there. But you know, the director looked at the you know, the the model, the character, and said, it looks like a penis. And they said, okay, we'll put a, you know, we'll put a cape on it. <laughs> so they put a cape on it. And the, the director said, now it looks like a penis with a cape. <laughs> so who knows? This could be a continuum, you know, the first thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that'll be a fun one to get to. <laughs> Victoria recognizes the pawns, but not not as anything other than Yeti. Uh, and uh, as soon as she says the Yeti, uh, the master tells her to forget about it, tells her she didn't actually see it. And now we see that she seems entranced. She's acting kind of out of it. So the master puts the Yeti figure back on the chessboard in a, in a line of figures like it. And then we cut to the outside in the courtyard where four Yeti come right through the gate of the monastery. Meanwhile, in the room with the straw mat where all the, uh, well, not all, but many of the people are being imprisoned, Travers comes too. He has vague memories of uh, seeing a light, hearing a noise, and he saw a pyramid. Um, which of course uh, we we saw Song Sen uh, put that bring that pyramid into the cave. Uh, he saw it too, but he he doesn't remember that part. He just remembers there was a pyramid involved. And having recounted what little he can remember, now he seems to be forgetting everything. Just like when you dream something and and you don't think about it, mm-hmm. or you try to grasp it, but it slips away. So finally, he says he's exhausted. And he goes back to sleep, and he remembers only a feeling of evil. And once he gets back to sleep, there's a loud ruckus outside, and the Yeti are smashing up the monastery. <laughs> they're just—they're not completely tearing it down, but they're taking big chunks out of the plaster, and you know, just just causing general havoc. Outside the gates, the warrior Krasong he apologizes to the abbot for all the trouble he's caused, and. Uh, for being stubborn, you know, it may have been well-intentioned, but it was still, you know, he was being disobedient. Somebody asks about Rin Chen. He's not out here with the rest of them. So, uh, so Krishong takes Raupachan into the monastery to check on Rin Chen. And it turns out that he's near the big Buddha statue. He's trying to stop the Yeti 
from tearing it apart. He's the guy I was mentioning, the kind of wise uh, monk who is was convinced that Victoria was behind everything. So even while they're tearing apart the Buddha statue, he's saying, you know, evil woman, stop this. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so they're tearing apart this Buddha statue, and and as we mentioned before, it's it's a big statue. I mean, it's larger than human size, uh, but they rip it apart into big chunks of rock or metal or whatever it's made of. And when they do that, the heavy pieces uh, rain down in Rinchen, and he's buried under them, and then they leave. And poor Rinchen, it turns out, is dead. I think he's got a hand sticking out from underneath the pile. (laughs) And the master is back in control as opposed to the intelligence. Uh, Oftentimes we see his eyes start glowing sinisterly when uh, when the intelligence is dominating him, but not always, I don't think. Um, but now the master's back in control, and he says, now the monks will leave. And he asks the intelligence if he'll be free now, because that was their agreement. Uh, we don't hear the intelligence's reply, but the answer is apparently no. So now the uh, the master, he wants V's help to make sure that the doctor leaves. So presumably the master is just genuinely concerned for everyone's welfare because I get the impression this intelligence doesn't care much whether it has to kill people or let him go. But the master's trying to trying to minimize uh, minimize the the deaths here. Mm. Tan Mi and the doctor discuss uh, triangulating the Yeti signal to find the source of the transmissions. If the doctor can just get another bearing on the signal, he thinks he can he can pinpoint it. Traverse wakes again. He he doesn't remember much of what he was talking about before, but uh, but he seems okay overall. The monks outside say they're going to take Ren Chen's body with them to give it a proper burial. Kershong is feeling ashamed of himself. He mentions that he did something cowardly, and I'm not I'm not sure what he's referring to. Maybe it was that he didn't get back to Rinchen in time to to save him. It's not clear, but that Kershong is feeling some repentance here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so bringing out a side of him we haven't seen much of so far. Victoria brings out the Ganta bell. She's she's still in her little trance, and she speaks to the abbot Songsen in uh, in the master's voice. He's transmitting through her somehow. The master says, "Bear it away to safekeeping." The bell he's speaking of, and further he assures the abbot that Victoria and the doctor have no malice; uh, they only want to help. So you know you don't need to worry about her. <laughs> But they want to help, but the master goes on to say, But in my wisdom, I tell you, there is no help. Dead sin must be abandoned. And then Victoria, having delivered that message, she faints away. The abbot uh, orders the strangers be released, and he gathers the monks uh, to have one last prayer at the monastery of Dead Sin. Tan May releases the prisoners. He assures Jamie that Victoria is safe. He's been uh, he's been worried about her. Victoria is now in another room, and she only responds to the doctor's voice. Jamie tries talking to her, and she's not even aware that he's there. When the doctor's voice reaches her ears, Victoria says something that she will repeat a few times over the next 
few minutes. She says, Doctor, there is great danger. You must take me away. Take me away. Take me away. <laughs> I think what's interesting here is she delivers this pretty emotionally, and then she'll just turn into a statue, and then a little while later she'll deliver the exact same thing with the exact same inflection. So she's sort of been programmed, I think, trying for, you know, trying to emotionally persuade the doctor to to do this, but she doesn't uh, she doesn't have any other will of her own. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's just on a loop. <laughs> so the doctor, uh, I didn't put in my notes who tells the doctor that the master remembers him, but somebody tells him that. And the doctor is surprised because that would mean that the master is the same man he met 300 years ago, and uh, most humans don't live that long. <laughs> so the doctor says, I'm going to see a very old friend, mm. which is... You know, sort of a double double play there because uh, he's very old physically, but also he's, you know, he knew him 300 years ago. Mm-hmm. Alone in his uh, little sanctuary, the master asks the intelligence why it's not following the original plan. We don't hear the intelligence reply. The master says, if you continue to expand, I have brought the world to its end. Yeah, I think what we find out is the original deal was it would just take over that cave, and then it decided it was going to take over the whole mountain, and then it decided it was going to take over everything. <laughs> yeah, apparently so. To emphasize the point, we we get a quick view of the interior of the cave, and we see that this white fungus, it's it's been expanding in these little fibers, almost like uh, when you see drawings of neurons or, you know, other networks of elaborate uh, fungi or stuff, stuff like that. You know, it's, it's just this white fibrous stuff that's expanding uh, and, and starting to cover a good portion of the cave now. So the doctor enters the master's sanctuary. The master says that his time left is short now, and he warns the doctor about the formless intelligence in space. <laughs> And how he met it was he astral traveled, as as Tibetan masters are prone to do. And he met the intelligence out there, and uh, it made him help it. It it partly convinced him to help it and partly made him help it. The doctor has a whole bunch of questions here. He asks them all in rapid fire. But the master doesn't answer, and in fact, he seems to die. Now, it turns out that he just passed out, but... The way the scene is animated, it seemed to be conveying that he had just finally passed away, mm. but he didn't. So the doctor returns to Victoria and Jamie. She's still repeating her programmed message. The doctor doesn't know if this is just simple hypnosis or something much uh, much more difficult to crack, but he has to try, he says. First, he tells Victoria that she's safe in the TARDIS. Uh, and then he puts her to sleep with a, the usual hypnosis rigmarole, you know, uh, you're getting sleepy, you know. Uh, and Jamie falls asleep, too, so a little bit of comic relief there. Yeah, I don't know if they inserted that one or not, but uh, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so the doctor prattles on for a few minutes and tells her to remember being, uh, you know, in the little straw mat prison room with uh with uh Thon me and all that and then he has her wake up and she's just fine so it worked out great 
And then the doctor and Travers meet outside the gate of the monastery. The doctor has that big electronic panel he took out of his trunk. The doctor wants to get back up the mountain to get one more bearing, and uh, Travers will help him. Out in the snowfields, they see two Yeti just standing around. They look almost dormant. They're not moving. They're not doing anything. But then the, uh, the big panel device that the doctors brought along, uh, it gets louder, uh, you know, reading the signals of the Yeti, and the Yeti start moving. Now the doctor finally has his extra reading he wanted, and it puzzles him. But we don't see why just yet. So back in the courtyard, Song Sen, the abbot, he goes to say goodbye to the master and ask him one final blessing. The doctor returns, and he says, The signal is coming from inside the monastery. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Then uh, Travers suddenly remembers that when he blacked out earlier, he was in the cave on the mountain. And we see a view of the cave entrance with the fungus spreading closer and closer to it, out of the cave. You know, it's, it's spreading from within the cave out to the open world. And that's the end of the episode. <laughs> yeah, one criticism I have of the animation is that the spreading fungus is supposed to be threatening in some way, but it really isn't. You know, you can barely notice it, and you know, it's yeah. I, I just I think they could have done a lot of things to make it actually seem more menacing. It doesn't look terribly sinister. I mean, it looks just ugly and nasty, but it's not like a lot of people probably wouldn't see it as an existential threat until it started uh, growing over their house. But uh, it reminds me of, uh, well, you haven't seen Creepshow. Creepshow is an anthology of horror stories, and one of them is this uh, meteorite that falls from space, and there's a a plant-based alien goo in there that does basically the same thing, which (laughs) I won't say any more than that, but... uh, but having seen that several times, this fungus may have may have been a little more uh, disturbing to me than it would be to your average Joe, I guess. <laughs> hey, well, episode six. So the doctor realizes that Songsten, you know, the abbot, is the answer, as he's the one who took the pyramid into the cave because Travers saw him do that. And now this is, you know, sort of surprising. Uh, Chrysong breaks into the sacred space, you know, the place that Song Sun would go and talk to the master and no one's ever allowed to go there. And Chrysong is a very by-the-book warrior and he's now thrown the rules out the window. (laughs) (laughs) He's a loose cannon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And he wants to know what's hidden in the sacred space and the master allows him to enter. But first he has to surrender his weapon. He's holding a sword to Song (sighs) Sun. Big mistake. <laughs> so yeah. he, get, he gives the sword to Songsten and starts walking toward the master, and Songsten immediately proceeds to stab him in the back. <laughs> yeah. So this emphasizes the point I made earlier that uh, whatever efforts are made to get these people away from the monastery, that's the master doing that. The intelligence should <laughs> be happy to just kill them all. Yeah. So the master tells Songsten to go with the monks. And so he'll never return to the monastery. And the doctor and company enter the sacred space and see what's happened. And they take the sword from Songsten and he's now taken away, which is a big deal because he's basically 
number two in the entire place, but really number one for everyone because no one gets to see the master, right? So the number one guy yeah. has basically been arrested. And the doctor talks to Chrysong, but it's too late. And, you know, and, and again, showing that he's just really a good guy, even as he's dying, he says, don't blame Songston. He was in a trance. It's not his fault. Mm-hmm. Although, <laughs> there's a lot of everybody's in a trance. It's not their fault in here. And I feel like, you know, it's you know, sometimes you got to take responsibility for your actions. But, uh, you know, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's a formless intelligence from space. I mean, those guys are tough. <laughs> yep. In the courtyard, everyone is informed of what Songston did, and now the guard tries to kill Songston because he's upset. But the doctor says neither Songston nor the master are responsible. They're both being controlled, so everyone's being controlled. (laughs) The monks decide to obey the doctor. So, you know, the doctor has everyone based on his side, and, and, you know, they need to work with him so that they can stay here. But off to the side, Travers tells the guard that the doctor is wrong. The, the problem is not in the monastery. The problem is in the cave where he saw that pyramid and he saw the, you know, growing tendrils. So he talks to the guard into helping him destroy it. And Songston now tells the doctor everything. You know, there's a great intelligence. It's, it was supposed to stay in the cave, but it's no longer confined to the cave. It broke its promise, as great intelligences tend to do. I mean, you know, <laughs> there aren't many great intelligences that would be happy to just stick around in a cave. That's all. <laughs> and uh, Songson now tells the doctor what it seems to me like, you know, the smartest guy in the universe should have been able to figure out that the controller for the snowman, the Yeti, is in the inner sanctum. You know, the the secret space where where they've now been multiple times where the master is. Uh, it just doesn't seem that mysterious that that's where the control would be, but okay. <laughs> the doctor is about to take Jamie, Victoria, and Thon Mi into the sanctum because he needs their help, but he's worried that Victoria could be hypnotized by the master, so he asks Thon Mi to teach her the jewel of the lotus prayer. And I looked it up, and this actually is true because we, we see it later. The whole, as everyone's heard, you know, Om Mani Padme Hum, that is yeah. the jewel of the lotus prayer. Um, yeah. Yeah. Although in the time he asked him to teach her that, he could have just told her the phrase, I guess. But maybe there's some subtleties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Don Mia will, uh, you know, drill it in through repetition. Yeah. So Travers and the guard are headed to the cave, and they see, and this is something where it's hard to tell what the animation is showing compared to what maybe the actual show would have been showing. We just kind of see that the mountain is being covered by something. We can't really see what it is, but... But now they can't make it to the cave. It's like they're surrounded by fog or something. Anyway, I just, there's a failure here where I don't really understand what they're seeing and what's keeping them from moving forward. But we'll just say it's really heavy fog, I guess. And if this is the scene that I think it is, we get a shot of the mountain that's kind of glowing, but also we see this glowing line on the ground, on the plain stretching out away from the mountain. And it seemed to me, you know, it was a short scene and I only watched it once, but it seemed to me that you could actually see a little bit of that that line on the ground expanding out further. Um, so if that's, if that's the same scene that we're talking about, um, I mean, it was, it was showing that the fungus is uh, really making some progress. Mm. So the, meanwhile, the doctor preps everyone for going into the sanctum. 
He says he'll deal with the master. Then they should rush behind the curtain and destroy the machinery there. Uh, but he then says he has no idea what will happen after that. So. <laughs> Meanwhile, snowmen are approaching the monastery. Travers and the guard or can't do anything about it. They're trapped in the fog. Um, the doctor finds a way into the sanctum. The master is not happy about it. Uh, says he is Padma Sambhava. <laughs> but the doctor says, hey, Padma is my friend, and that's not who you are. Uh, the master says the doctor's brain is too small to understand, which is always <laughs> a pretty good way to that's insult the doctor. Humans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the master levitates a sword and threatens them, but the doctor's not impressed. He's like, mere levitation, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, for some reason, instead of attacking them with the sword, the master opens the sanctum door, and uh, the doctor makes his way toward the master. Now, this is actually pretty effective, because he's on his knees, you know, reaching forward, but he can barely move. Like, it's, you know, there's there's this force sort of keeping him, um, or making him move very slowly, pushing him back. And then the master floats and starts to glow. And I'm kind of curious again, because we already know with this character that the animation took a lot of, uh, you know, took their own approach. So I, I don't know what it looks like in the live action. But, um, and he does sort of a force thing that prevents the others from getting in. But eventually they manage to do it. And, you know, Jamie and Thonmi start smashing electronic controls behind the master's desk. Meanwhile, you know, the master has that sort of board game where he has the Yeti models, uh, which you had your interesting description for. <laughs> and, and he, the master is sort of remotely controlling those models to bring the, the Yeti in. And meanwhile, the, the doctor and Victoria do their own money, pat me home to, you know, help them focus and reach the models, but they can't quite make it. I think it ha has already been brought up uh, in the story and I don't think either of us addressed it. We do get a little bit of history at some point where we find out that the master had, um, over the course of hundreds of years, the intelligence had guided him to build all these machines mm -hmm. and to build mm -hmm. the Yeti themselves, uh, <laughs> which is how all that stuff came to be. The intelligence was actually guiding him because as the master of a monastery, you wouldn't expect him to have the engineering chops to do something like that but uh, with the intelligence guiding him that's that's how all that came <laughs> and we about. won't get into how he was sourcing the you know circuits and other things you need to make this work <laughs> yeah. up on, in the himalayas but okay so jamie and thami have destroyed the machinery they can see but it doesn't stop the yeti and it turns out there's a big sphere next to them in the room and the doctor tells them to destroy it and they start smashing it. And I got to say, I, I really like the animation. I think they did a really good job. This is embarrassing. And being it's like <laughs> in the last scene, I feel like they ran out of money or something because, or time. It is a little clumsy looking, yeah. Yeah, because you have this big sphere and they start hitting it and stuff just starts flying left and right with no physics, no, you know, it doesn't make any sense. It looks terrible. <laughs> Yeah, and the and the destruction of the big Buddha statue was similar. I, no, maybe not quite as rough as this. But, yeah, it uh, didn't bother yeah, me anywhere near as as much as this. Uh, you know, so for me anyway, they kind of got away with it with the statue, but here it really looks bad. Yeah, but you know, fortunately for them, destroying this sphere stops things. You also, I will say, story wise, and again, I don't know if the animation introduces sphere. I, I don't know, but. 
story-wise, a weakness is we've never seen this fear before. There's no, so there's no suspense built up for it, right? It's just there, and then they smash it. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, once we see that it exists, then we can say, oh, that's like the master sphere of the little tiny spheres we've been seeing all along. But, uh, but yeah, it's it's really not uh, not a great payoff in my book. I, uh, <laughs> it's yeah. it sort of reminds me of the thing Hitchcock talked about, which I think is really fascinating about film. Right? He says, let's you know, you have people on a train and and they're going along, and then you show a bomb, and the bomb blows up. And he says, that's not suspenseful at all, right? That's not interesting at all. What you do is people are entering the train, you see a shot of the bomb. You know, they're sitting down, right, you see a right. shot of the bomb. They're, you know, so you you build up the suspense because you know the bomb is there and the bomb's going to go off. But if the bomb just goes off, which is kind of like them, you know, just smashing the sphere, there's, it, it doesn't mean anything, right? There's no emotional <laughs> impact of it. Right? Yeah. Hmm. Now, there could still be... Other reasons, you know, if you're not going for suspense, maybe you're just going for the shock, you know, like right. uh, like in Brazil when they're eating in a restaurant and the terrorist bomb goes yeah. off. You know, yeah, that's, that's a good uh, point. That's another approach to the bomb thing that's very effective. That's true. But I don't think either of those the case here. I think it's just simple. <laughs> yeah. But actually, vanity, oh, I forgot. It turns out even the sphere wasn't enough. The Yeti are still coming. And so the real answer is that there's a little set of balls there on the table and they need to like mess up. You know, it's sort of like when somebody has a nice little, you know, Japanese garden thing where they have some, you know, on their table and they have the sand, you know, nicely curated with lines through it and everything. And then you go and mess it up, right? That would be really a jerk thing to do. Well, there's just this little table sitting there with some balls on it. And when they mess up the balls, that's what... I th I think it was another one of those um, pyramid stacks, like the yeah. cannonball, cannonball ammo stacks, um, which we've already seen be dismantled. Um, you know, like when Song Sen went into the cave and the pyramid dismantled itself so he could set the little glass pyramid down in the midst right. of the table. So so it's almost it's almost seems unfair because. After, you know, that pyramid was dismantled and, and it did it on purpose, now dismantling this one screws everything up. So, yep. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But it does work. It causes the master to start glowing and an earthquake starts up and starts to swallow up Yeti. <laughs> this is probably one of those cases where I'm sure yeah. the anim the animation <laughs> is more interesting than the reality. It's sort of like Galaxy 4 or whatever, right, when the planet was destructing at the end. <laughs> you can do a lot more in the animation. <laughs> and... Padma Samabhava's body is still there, but now without the intelligence. And he says, at last, peace, and he disintegrates. So, uh -huh. Yeah, just like a, I mean, totally disintegrates, like a vampire, you know. Oh, yeah. he, he turns into a skull and then dust, you know, the whole nine yards. <laughs> yeah. And the doctor says the monks can now return to the monastery. And meanwhile, the crew is usually, you know, people want them to stick around, but of course they're making their exit. So the crew and Travers go out, and they find a deactivated Yeti laying on the ground. And the doctor says Travers can take this back to prove, you know, he was right. But Travers totally reasonably says, no, this is a robot. Everyone's going to say, I just had it made. You know, it's not going to prove anything. Yeah, and, although it's more functional than probably any, assuming this is around the 1960s on Earth, you know, this is 
probably a more functional robot than anything mankind has built to this point. But you know, that's a, a nuance that Travers might not know of. So. <laughs> well, and then in the distance, we see an ape-like creature covered in white fur. <laughs> and so Travers heads off to finally find his real Yeti. So <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it gets a look at them and it, it, uh, it runs off. You know, it's very shy. <laughs> Which is what we've been told about the Yeti all along throughout these yep. episodes. The crew heads back to the TARDIS, and then we close in on the, you know, robot Yeti hand, and eventually we see it twitch, and that's the end of the story. Oh, <laughs> uh, It's a total cheat, because, like, there's no, it makes no sense in the story, right? It's, it's, <laughs> now, so, in Tomb of the Cybermen, when the little Cybermat came out at the end, that made sense, right? Okay, there's, there's one yeah. last you know, cyber robot thingy of it around and that could cause things to go. But there's just no reason that this Yeti would have be, you know, have something controlling it at this point. <laughs> That's the end of the story. Yeah. So we discussed the filler aspects of this already, but I would say you could probably make a much tighter, better story out of this if you cut it down, you know, three episodes or even probably two episodes, I think you could do uh, a more a, a more streamlined story of it. But I think in general, uh, four episodes is a pretty good Doctor Who story arc. And I, I would say, you know, I like a lot of things about this. I think it's a good story. I think if it were four episodes, it could have been a really good story, right? So, so, so that's a little unfortunate. But, but I would say there's no bad acting. Um, I really now, honestly, going into this because all I knew going in was pictures I'd seen of these Yeti, right? Which just look ludicrous, oh, yeah. right? They're big. They're big teddy bears, basically. Right? Yeah. Um, and they were for all the things they changed in the animation, they kept the Yeti pretty much true to how they were in the show. So. I thought this could be a disaster. I thought that it was, you know, just going to, you know, have a lot of problems, et cetera. But, you know, all the actors were good. Uh, I think the animation was really good. They, there were, I mean, the the question of what's going on with the master, the Padma Sambhava, was kind of intriguing. And I think the idea that, you know, he was being kept alive against his will for hundreds of years, I think that's a, a pretty interesting element of all this. Um Mm-hmm. Also, I mean, for better or for worse, the fact that basically everybody's being controlled by somebody, right? So, so the the master is controlling the abbot, and the abbot is at least socially controlling, you know, not not so much by spells or anything, but he's socially controlling the monks in the monastery. But you know, at the end of the day, the one thing controlling everybody is the great intelligence. So. There are good and bad things about that, but I, I think it's it's interesting that, you know, you have to figure out, like, what's going on and who's good and who's bad, and it's not always obvious uh, in the story. Yeah, and Travers, Travers is, is a jerk at, early on, as in Chris Ong, and they both end up becoming good guys. And then that Ren Chen, who uh, 
was generally a good guy, but he died uh, <laughs> hating Victoria and suspecting yeah, he's, her. That is interesting. He was, and, sort of, you know, and again, because clearly there's like two guys who are sort of the the wise older guys, right? And the fact that he was just so wrong about that and he wouldn't give it up until the end was kind of an interesting uh, reversal of of all that other stuff. And I will say, I was amazed that Travers lived to the end of the story. I mean, Travers, by definition, <laughs> is the guy who's supposed to die in there somewhere, maybe by, you know, doing a heroic act to save the crew or, or something. But the idea that I was really surprised that he was alive at the end. <laughs> Well, maybe it's because she was, or he he was played by Victoria's dad in real yeah. life. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess that has its privileges. Yeah. So I think it's an interesting story, and you know, yeah, it should have been a little shorter, but um, uh, overall, I mean, for me, it is it's reasonably good. It's not great, but uh, it's certainly interesting, especially in the history. Of the show and and things that we're going to see that are going to come up. I mean, so where do, where do you uh, come down on it? Yeah, it's it's a fun story, but for six episodes, I'd say the game isn't worth the candle. You know, I definitely <laughs> wouldn't pull somebody down on the couch to uh, force them to watch it. You know, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, for Doctor Who, it's it's a standard fare. I'd say it's a. It's got its moments, and it's got its uh, slow moments. <laughs> <laughs> well, next up is another six-episode one, so we'll see what we think about that. The Ice Warriors, which um, I'll at least uh, spoil that it does introduce a you know villain that's going to stick around for a while. So <laughs> we'll see what you think about hmm. that. All right. And it's, uh, I think, mostly live. I think two episodes are animated. So. Huh. Very good. That'll be. It's always nice to to get the live action ones. Yeah. After after Patrick Troughton, there's not a great deal of lost episodes after that, are there? Right. Are uh, there? Basically okay. none at this really? point. I think there might have been like one story that was kind of lost that got recovered. So it's, you know, yeah, Troughton is, uh, I mean, Trouton just bore the brunt of it, right? I mean, the, yeah, the last yeah. season of um, Hartnell was bad. A lot of those were missing. But Trouton, it's just like, I mean, you think about all the animated stuff we've seen, including this. So basically, people trying to go back, as we're doing and watching this, before these animated shows were available over the last decade or so, they just didn't see, they saw like two Trouton stories. I mean, it was just really <laughs> pathetic, you know, and especially given how important he was and and his crew was to the show. It's you know really unfortunate. That's so. I'm really really glad that they've taken the effort to to animate these because it does at least give you a chance to to really experience the stories for yeah. better or for worse. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, come back next week to see what we think of the Ice Warriors. Lazarus, right? And if you see the uh, Martin, you know Martin Scorsese version of that, it was interesting, right? Because he came back to life, but he was kind of a zombie. He was like, you know, flies buzzing around him, and you know, his skin was kind of dead and all that. So he wasn't wasn't really back to life. Um, and huh. I think that's now was that the uh, the last temptation of Christ? Yeah. 
Yeah, did you oh, ever see okay. that? I never, never saw it. No. Oh, it's a. I haven't seen it in decades, but it's both a, I think, really interesting and really bizarre movie because you. <laughs> you have I remember new- it was uh, a lot of people were up in arms about it at the time it came out. The controversies were silly, never. But one of the reasons that was the point when um, it, it doesn't really happen today, but that was still a point where a movie could cause controversy. And so when we went to see it in San Francisco at one of the the major, you know, single screen theaters there, uh, if you want to know what a single screen theater is, I'll explain that to you because, but, um, <laughs> you know, you stood, it was one of those cases where you stood in line for hours because uh, you needed, you know, the, it, the line was wrapping around the block. You had to wait till the uh, movie got out and all this, all these, uh, uh, like what I called uh, College Christians were there because they were people like people had gone to college and become Christian in the last five months or mm-hmm. whatever, and they were trying to convince us not to watch the movie. And they're like, "Oh, yeah. you know, my my leader watched it, and he said the acting's really bad." And we're like, "Really? You you don't want us to go to the movie because the acting's bad?" <laughs> and I got into debates about them and everything, but um, so it was it was a huge you know there was various controversies, but to me what's really interesting is that it was both very sincere. You know, Martin Scorsese is a Catholic, and so the material was very important to him. It's based on a book. I'm sure this is all going to go at the end. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also he was using some of his stock actors. So he had like, uh, oh, what's his name? It was the bad lieutenant and um, Mean Streets and all that. Harvey uh, Keitel. Keitel? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so you have Harvey Keitel with his his Bronx accent. <laughs> as one of these guys. <laughs> so there was some yeah, stuff that was, Winston that was pretty weird. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, Jesus is like, oh, you didn't tell me you were calling the wolf. <laughs> <laughs> you fool! 